Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 2, and verses 32 through 40. You can also follow along on page 8 of your bulletins. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames, and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength, and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. This is the word of God. If you've been coming to Metro for a while, uh, we know that we've been walking through the book of Hebrews uh, since the fall. And uh, the book of Hebrews was written to people who are suffering, people who are experiencing extreme difficulties and persecution and as a result, they were turning away from their faith. And, and we got to uh, chapter 11. Here the Hebrews writer uh, gives them reminders of faith, a faith that will enable them to handle the most difficult troubles in life. Now, we took the last fall of chapter, to walk through chapter 11, all the different components of chapter 11. Uh, so I'm going to really cut to the end here uh, to answer two questions. What is faith and how do you get it? You can't get more pedantic than that, right? What is faith? How do you get it? First, what is faith? There's no doubt that chapter 11 lists great examples of faith. Verse 1, faith is what? Being sure of what we hope for. Being certain. What are you certain about? Uh, For each example in chapter 11, as we walked through last fall, God becomes greater than just a rational thought, more than just an idea. In every one of these case studies that you see in chapter 11, God became personal. God shook the foundations of the people who are listed here, and they obeyed, and they connected to him. In each case, they realized that the visible world wasn't all there is. And so we read, by faith they did this, and by faith they did that, and so on and so forth. And you see this all the way up until you get to verse 32. You get to today's passage when you read, and when you read it, it it doesn't immediately jump out to you, But there's actually a progression, uh, a pivotal shift in this text, verses 32 to 38. There are two parts to this text, and it's very important to see this, that verse 35, there's a pivot, a bit of a pivot. It becomes obvious as you read it, but it's the key to understanding this passage. The author begins, and he goes rapid fire at the end, verses 32 to 38. But he's creating two sets of people, two sets of lists, First, the first list, you see verses 32 to 35. And then the second set, you see verses 35 to 38. 
And the author here is addressing two different types of people. And he's showing us uh, two different types of situations, two different types of struggles, two different ways of overcoming. And as a result, what we see here are two different types of faith. Both faith. Two different types of faith. The first first list here is verses 32 to 35. All the people mentioned here, you can really sum it up in verse 34. They are the people whose weakness turned to strength. Their weakness was turned to strength. In other words, they began at the bottom but somehow they rose and they overcame. They faced overwhelming odds. They, they fa- faced certain defeat. They were bound to lose. And yet, in the end, they triumphed. They overcame. And so if you look at this list, verse 32, you see Gideon, and you see Barak, and you see Samson, and uh, you see Jephthah, and David, and Samuel. Verse 33 says, they conquered kingdoms, they administered justice, they gained what was promised, they escaped the edge of the sword, they overcame, they faced certain death, but they overcame. They faced certain loss, but they triumphed, and they won. They shut the mouths of lions. Now clearly, if you know anything about the Old Testament, this passage, that portion was talking about Daniel. Daniel faced death, he was thrown into a den of lions. He was supposed to be dead, but the first thing next morning, the king, he approached that. It was supposed to have been a tomb. He, he uncovers the tomb, and what does he see? Daniel's alive. He overcame. He triumphed. He escaped certain death. It says that they quenched the fury of the flames. They're clearly talking about Daniel's friends. In, uh, in Daniel chapter 3 in the Old Testament, you have Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego. They were thrown into a furnace because of their faith, because of their values, because of what they believe, because of their worship. They were thrown into a furnace. They faced certain death, but they survived. In each one of these cases, in every one of these case studies, God worked through weakness. God worked through brokenness. God worked through oppression. God worked through powerlessness to demonstrate his immense power and his wisdom and his strength. Daniel's friends, they actually approached the king. What did they say? God will be able to save us. But even if he doesn't, we will still not serve you, gods. We will still not worship your gods. That's what they say. They trusted. Why did they trust? How did they trust? The writer is saying that they, they had a faith that enabled them to trust that the visible world, what you see, is not all that there is. And so they looked to Christ ahead, who was ahead of them. They looked to God. They trusted God. They obeyed God, and they won. Now, we get to this pivotal verse, verse 35. The text says that women received back their dead. They were raised to life again. In the Old Testament, The author could have only been referring to two women. There were only two women in the Old Testament whose sons had died. One was during the time of Elijah. The other was the time of Elisha. But through the power of God, their sons were risen to life. Now, that's an amazing narrative, and we love stories like this. We love stories like that. I'm going to give you a couple examples. Every one of us has known somebody who said something like this. I faced death. The doctor said, I only had a few months to live. We all hear stories like this. I only had a few months to live, but I didn't give up hope. And there were people around me who fought with me, and they prayed for me, and I prayed, and I fought, and I recovered. And the doctor says, you are a walking miracle. You are a walking miracle. We love stories like this. You want to hear a recent story? I'm going to set the stage for you midway. 
through the third quarter. It was 28 to 3. The team starts with what? A punt, a punt, a fumble, a punt, a pick six. For those of you who don't watch football, that means it's an interception that leads to a touchdown, right? A field goal and a punt. That was the first half, midway through the third quarter. But the team didn't give up. The defense didn't give up. The quarterback didn't give up. The coach didn't give up. They fought and they clawed their way and they fought and they played. And from that point on, what did they have? A touchdown, a field goal, a touchdown, a touchdown, a two-point conversion, overtime, and victory. Touchdown. The team didn't give up. They fought. We love stories like that. We talk about this is one for the ages, we say. We love stories like that. And they exist for a reason because these wins and these narratives in our lives, they're really etched into something that's spiritual. They're etched into our spiritual DNA. And that's why we're drawn to stories like this where you face certain loss, certain death, and yet you triumph. Our spiritual DNA tells us that these stories, it's more than just a game. It's more than just a narrative. It's more than just about one person who overcame death. It's etched into our spiritual DNA. But if faith is just that, If your faith is just sitting between verse 32 and verse 35, really what you're saying is, if I just believe, if I just fight, I can achieve anything. Friends, I got to tell you this as a pastor, and I have to tell you this as a brother, and in some ways a father to you, right? You're doomed. You're doomed, if that's all you know. There's no spiritually mature person that I know that will ever teach that as the end all of faith. Because anyone who knows the Bible... Anyone who's ever experienced life, for that matter, knows that that is not always true. Life is, life is harsh. Life will beat you up. Life is, is designed in many ways. This world is designed to convince you that God is not real, that all that's visible is all there is. Life is designed to, hate your, to make you hate yourself and hate other people. And I'm telling you, those Sunday school classes that we were taught back in the day when we were children, you know, those teachers, they had great intent. A lot of those teachers had great intent, but a lot of them were wrong. A lot of them were wrong. They're almost responsible for an entire generation of people walking away from the church, walking away from their faith, from the Bible. Why? Because we were taught that if you just pray, if you just work hard, if you just fight, you can defeat all the Goliaths in your life. You have to have a faith that's like David. And some of us were even taught that if you don't overcome, it's because you didn't have enough faith. Now, it doesn't take much to come to the realization that you're doomed if you actually believe that. You're doomed. You're at loss. Thankfully, we have verses 35 to 38. Thankfully, there's more to faith than just verses 32 to verse 35. Halfway through, you see the pivot in verse 35. There's a shift. And it begins with the phrase, others. Women received back their sons from the death, from their death. Others, there are others. There are those who overcame great odds. There are those who faced death and lived. There are those who faced certain loss and overcame. There are others. There are others who believed. There are others who trusted God. There are others who obeyed. And their lives went a completely different direction. Their lives went the opposite direction, so to speak. Their lives went a different way. 
Yes, there are Davids. David was a shepherd's boy, so he was poor and he was uneducated and he was the youngest of eight sons. And because he's the youngest of eight sons, he was so disregarded. He was so overlooked, but he became king. He was anointed. There are stories like that. We love stories like that. David killed the giant, and the king wanted him dead, and so he hid in caves, but he triumphed. We love stories like that. God worked through weakness, turned to strength. He escaped from death. He escaped from the edge of the sword, but there are others. There are others who trusted God, and they weren't rescued. There are others who trusted God, and there was no escape. There are others who trusted God and there was no miracle. And it's not because they didn't pray. They prayed and they fought and there was no escape and there was no miracle and they suffered and they were tortured and they were rejected and they were jeered and they were flogged and they were put in chains, it says here, and they were put to death. You see that progression? Verse 35, when you really read it, there's a stark contrast. On the one hand, we see that women receive back From the dead, their sons back from the dead. They were raised to life again. Others were tortured. Others, they refused to be released. In other words, there were some women, both women had sons. There were some women who experienced miracles. There were others that experienced torture. And if you really go back to Jewish history, you have to kind of dig into Jewish history on this. And most likely, um, and all commentators say this, most likely when that line there, they were talking about other women who didn't receive their sons back from the dead. They were talking about some brutal stories of persecution, brutal things that were happening to particularly two women. They say most of these commentators were pointing to uh, several women, several specific women. There were two women, mothers, who lost their children. Life is brutal. Life is brutal, and and in our world, we take for granted how incredibly safe our society here is. With all the horrors that you see, with all the evils that we see outside of these walls alone, we live in an incredibly safe society. And that, that blessing in many ways we take for granted. And what we do is we, it makes us envy. It, it causes us actually to crave even better lives than that. That's us. That's our society today. We live a life of craving uh, without end. We live a life of, of envy and jealousy. And, and rather than living out of gratitude for the safety that we have, we live tremendously uh, selfish lives. We're so concerned about that life that we've pictured in our head. It's not going to happen. And that's the way we live. And so we pr- we're so protective of our children, and we're so protective of our careers, and we're so protective of our homes and our lives, and we're so protective of our privacy. Now, we're building a generation Parents, you have to understand this. We're building a generation of very strong and healthy people who are really weak inside, cowards inside. They can't handle suffering. Maybe you can't handle suffering, you see. Were these people so different? How did they face adversity? How did they choose to face that adversity? Verse 35, others refused release. It was a choice. How did they do that? That means they looked death in the eye. They knew it was certain. They looked death in the eye. They said, give it to me. I'd rather have it. I'd rather have that. And they taught this to their children. There were women who received back from the dead. Their their sons were raised to life. Others were tortured. 
They saw their children suffering, and they said, give it to me. Give it to us. Why? What kept them going? I'm going to tell you one of those stories at the end of the service. What kept them going? The text says here, so that they would gain a better resurrection. Now, why? Some women, they received their sons. They were raised to life again. They gained a resurrection. That's amazing. It's an amazing story, an amazing, powerful uh, narrative about faith. But other people, they knew They absolutely knew that this present life, even if they did receive their sons back from the dead, their sons would be subject to this life. This present life is just a delay, a temporary stay. Their sons would be subject to suffering again, possibly torture again. It was just a temporary stay. That's what life is. Faith is a certainty that the visible world isn't all there is. And it leads us to trust in God in a way that enables us to handle suffering and overcome overcome you know what faith says faith says this one day death itself will be reversed one day death itself is going to die one day at the true resurrection of the body there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth there's going to be a new me it's going to be a complete version of me And so to hear from you, yes, you're going to lose your family, you're going to lose your wealth, you're going to lose your status, or you're going to lose your security, your reputation, you're going to lose your your children and your life. They're responding, you know what? I'm not even going to flinch because one day I'm going to get it all back. One day I will receive it all back. If I don't receive it now, I will receive it tomorrow. And so you can beat me, you can chain me, you can imprison me, you can mock me, you can kill me. You're only going to remake me and complete me. That's faith. Two sides of faith. Trusting in a better resurrection. Not just what God has done, but what is ahead. Now, that doesn't mean that the first several verses in this passage, verses 32 to 35, that these people had less faith. It doesn't mean that at all. Definitely not. Remember, these people, they obeyed despite certainty of loss. And they won. They triumphed. That's God's grace. That's God's provision. These people, they obeyed with all the odds that were stacked against them. There was certain death. They believed that God can rescue them, but the rescue wasn't the agenda. They didn't have a faith in God so they can get things from God. They had a faith in God so they can have more of God, you see. Their suffering brought them a greater intimacy. Their suffering suffering brought them a greater intimacy with God. Philippians chapter 3, we read in our call to worship. The apostle Paul writes what? The Apostle Paul writes, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his victory, in his sufferings, in his sufferings. There are people who come to me, um, a lot of people come to me who come to me and say, you know, I trusted God. You know, I'm coming back to the church. I trusted God. And where did that really get me, Pastor? I prayed for this, I served, I prayed my heart out, I gave up a lot, and I feel like God has failed me. A lot of people say that. God has failed me. And I trusted God, they say. It's an occupational hazard for pastors to have to say this, but no, you weren't trusting God. You weren't trusting God. You were trusting what God can give to you. That's what you were trusting. There was something else that you had your faith in. There was something else that you said, if I have this, it will make me. If I don't have this, it will break me. 
If I have this, then God is real. And if I don't have this, I must reject God. That's what we're saying, you see. You're not trusting God. You're trusting what God can do for you. God is really uh, an influencer at best. God is really um, uh, someone who's really, you're not at his call. He's at your call, you see. Someone, something else is your foundation. That's what you're really serving. That's what you're really trusting. Now, friends, if that's how you're living life and if that's how you're viewing God, if that's your view of God, you're never going to be handled suffering. There's no way you'll ever be able to handle suffering like that. You're never going to make it. And why? It's because this world, the world has a way of thwarting your plans. That's the way the world works. The world has a way of, you have a plan in life, you have a trajectory in view. The world has a way of doing everything it can in its power to mess up your goals. Verses 32 to 38, these, these folks, they trusted all the way. Whether they overcame, whether they faced death, they trusted all the way. And it either led them to great victory or gave them the strength and the power to go to an early death. These people, they had a faith that didn't require success. They didn't need the success. True success is not desperate for things that aren't going to save you, you see. They saw beneath what was visible. And they pursued that. And that's what they gained. A better resurrection. That's what faith is. Now, how do you get it? How do you get this faith? If you believe in a better resurrection, that's what the author is saying. If you believe in a better resurrection, that is the key to facing anything. How do you get it? Verse 39 says this. These were all commended for their faith. And that points really to the first verse in this chapter right? Second verse. This is what the ancients were commended for. These were all commended for their faith, and yet none of them received what had been promised. None of them received what had been promised. They received a promise, and they lived out in faith. They didn't have anything tangible to hold on to. They received a promise, and they obeyed based on the promise because they believed that he who promised is faithful. That's what we read in chapter 11. Now, what made these people great? What enabled these people to live such big lives? What enabled these people to overcome the world, look terror in the eye, look death in the eye, miracle or no miracle, rescue or no rescue, escape or no escape? They were looking forward to something that hadn't happened yet. They were looking forward to a promise that they had not yet received. And then we get to verse 40. Verse 40 says what? God had planned something better. The author says, we had begun to receive what they merely just saw from afar, we received. God had planned something better, something that eventually was going to complete all of us all together, a final home, a city of God by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we have it. He says, we have it. Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ rose again. They saw it way in the future. They saw way in the future the implications of that in our lives. What we've begun to just get, they only saw promise. What we received in full, they only received. The ancients, they received as a promise, you see. Now, it's really funny <clears throat> when people come to me and they say, you know, these old, if I lived in those times, I would have faith. If I lived in those times, I would have faith too. Really? Because what did they really have? What did Abraham have? What did they have? The Old Testament people that were listed in chapter 11, all they had was a promise. We have the reality. Jesus Christ came. Jesus Christ died. Jesus Christ rose again. Verse 39 and 40 says, they had resources. They had faith. 
You have faith. You believe. You trust. Do you? Do you trust? Do you trust? Verse 39 and 40 says, they live big lives through triumph and success or failure and death. You can live even bigger lives than them. You can, live, you can live even bigger lives than they did. They only had a promise. We have the fulfillment. We have the reality. We have a better resurrection. We have a better resource. What is that? I'm going to tell you a couple things. First, the resurrection itself. There are, the whole reason why uh, these people were great, the whole reason why they weren't afraid of death, uh, and it's not, uh, if, think about it. If you're not afraid of death, you're not going to be afraid of anything. How can, be you, how, can be, how can you be so sure of your future? How can you be so sure of your future that it makes you not afraid of death? Every religion lays claim to some kind of happening after death. Every faith system, every religion lays some kind of claim as to what's going to happen after death. You see it in TV. You see it in your movies. Lots of stories that tell us how beautiful life after death is going to be, how glorious life after death is going to be. Death is almost like a friend in our TV shows and in our movies. But think about this. Only Christianity, because how do you know? Only Christianity gives us something greater than a story. It gives us an actual person that was raised. Every other, everything else, every other religion, it's a conjecture at best. There's no any more proof. It's just an idea, a concept. And so death being your friend, I mean, the Bible never says that. The, never, the Bible never says that death is your friend. The Bible says death is a horrible thing. The Bible says death is a fearful thing in many ways. And yet the Apostle Paul says, where, O oh death, is your sting? In 2005, Newsweek, a very popular magazine, Newsweek magazine wrote about Jesus right around the time of Lent, the Lent season, uh, the Easter season. And they, look, they basically had all these scholars come together and uh, these secular scholars to look at all the historical evidence and the data. If you, if you were in college around that time or if you were uh, older, uh, 2005, was, it was pretty remarkable, uh, Newsweek coming out with this article. And they basically wanted to get and have a very forensic view of what's going on. They wanted to take, a, uh, they wanted to take the historical evidence, look at all the data, talk to all the different faith systems, um, and really talk about the resurrection. And secular publication basically concluded that the resurrection of Jesus Christ probably happened. It was actually pretty amazing. Now, how can they conclude this? And, and the reason why is because they come to the conclusion that there's no historically possible alternate explanation for the birth of the Christian church. They said, we can't understand how the church could have grown out of the first century unless it actually happened. Unless these early Christians, with, despite all the opposition and suffering they faced, how could they, unless they saw the risen Jesus themselves, how could they... How could the church have made it out with such a crazy claim? And I'm going to tell you why. If you don't believe, right now, if you're sitting in this congregation and you don't really believe, rather than placing the burden of proof on Christians, the burden of proof is really on you. Newsweek magazine says that. The burden of proof is really on you. Because there's so much that points to the truth and the reality of the resurrection. Now, I'm not one to believe that evidence is all you need. I don't have to look at all the historical facts. I, I've seen a lot of facts. I don't need, I'm not one to believe that that's all you need. Because, but I, I can't deny so much evidence exists. 
And we can talk about all the ev evidence. Maybe I'll do a Q&A sometime. We can talk about that another time. But you have to account for the fact that hundreds of Jews saw Jesus in groups repeatedly over periods of time for 40 days after the resurrection. It was written into history. It wasn't just written into the scriptures. And, and uh, you have to account for that. Because people, individual people, they could be high, they could be hallucinating, but you don't hallucinate in groups, okay? And, and these people are willing to die in groups. Now, maybe one person's willing to die for a lie, but people were willing to die in groups for a lie? You never see that. How did thousands of Jews and Greeks in that, in that time, in those ancient times, how did thousands of Jews and Greeks whose worldviews had no room, they had no concept of a resurrection, there was no indications that any disciple in the Bible, in the Gospels, believed that Jesus was going to rise from the dead. They, it was otherworldly for them. The thought never etched into their worldview, right? How did thousands of Jews and Greeks whose worldviews had no concept of a resurrected Savior, who didn't get the concept of a resurrection at all, even as a good thing? Now, remember this. Greeks, they didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. They didn't believe in that, right? The body was a bad thing. The Greeks didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. The Jews didn't believe that an individual savior would actually die. They didn't believe that their king would actually come to die. So the resurrection wasn't needed. They didn't believe in this. So how did these people actually overnight, because the Jews, they expected a savior that would come and rescue them from the present visible suffering, right? They expected a king to come in glory, to rescue them, someone who would be powerful. How did they overnight uh, change their worldview at the cost of their lives. You have to account for that. Why did hundreds of people who say they saw him wrote it into public record? This would be the end of their, it would be something like going to a notary public and making sure that this was witnessed and etched as eyewitness account. And not a single person, this was written in scripture. The, the epistles that were written by Paul were pretty much notarized official documents and accounts. Not a single person came out and said, all it needed was one person to come back and say, no, I was there, and that didn't really happen. How did Christianity come out of the first century? And we haven't even talked about the torture and the, and the, and the suffering and the persecution. How did they do that? You can't just, my, my point is, you can't just say, well, I can't believe this. That's not enough. You have to account for all, there are more questions that come out of not believing that. Well, some people say, well, you can't, I can't just believe, it's just too ludicrous. It's just so uh, outlandish. I mean, in our 21st century, how can we really believe that this actually happened? Really? That's your argument? That's your argument that you can't, you can't, it, you can't conceive that in your own mind? So if I can't conceive it in my mind, then it must not have happened? That, friends, that's not even intelligent as an argument. I don't want to offend you, but that's not even an intelligent argument. That's a leap. That's a leap of faith. We're desperately holding on, a lot of times, against evidence. You know what you're doing? You're holding on to an Anglo-European Enlightenment ideal that's really only been around since the 1800s. Did you know that? Do you know anything about the Enlightenment, that everything needs empirical evidence? That's only been around since the 1800s. I don't have the time to break it all down for you, right? I'm just asking you to admit that that's what you're doing and to consider the possibility. And what's more important, you have to, desperately staying away from the possibility, the certainty, that could be the key to transformation of your life 
into greater courage so that you can handle suffering in our lives. Because if Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, there's your certainty. The Apostle Paul says, where, O death, is your sting? So the resurrection, you have to look at the resurrection. Second, when Jesus Christ resurrected, disciples didn't recognize him. And this comes from a couple commentators that made me stop and pause and think about this. Even Mary didn't recognize Jesus when he was glorified. He came, he was resurrected. Um, he didn't rec- she, she thought he was the gardener. Now, how did they recognize him? Later on, he says, my wounds, my scars. Thomas, remember, you, everyone knows the concept of doubting Thomas, right? Unless I see him with my eyes, unless I touch him, right? That's what he says. Well, Jesus Christ says, uh, stop doubting and believe. He appears before Thomas. He asks him to touch. He asks him to look at the scars, to touch, to touch his side. And Thomas didn't even have to touch. He just falls and says, my Lord and my God. They recognize Jesus by his wounds, by his scars. Now, that's kind of an interesting idea because here's Jesus in a glorified state, and yet he, was, uh, he still had his scars. He shows them to his disciples. And the reason why I think this happened is because when the disciples saw Jesus on the cross, their lives were shattered. Think about it. This was their king. This was the one that was going to give them a whole new life. To follow Jesus and to abandon, they abandoned, they sacrificed a lot. To follow Jesus, they thought they would be a part of his cabinet, a part of his administration. So to see him hanging on a cross, and the concept of a resurrection was not a part of their worldview. Their lives were over. Their lives were shattered. And not to mention, they just betrayed their best friend. They just betrayed their best friend. And, and they couldn't handle the pressure. They couldn't handle the potential suffering in their lives. And so they ran from him. They abandoned him. Why? Because they never really believed. They believed in an agenda that they had for Jesus. But as soon as they saw the nails, as soon as they saw the spear, their agenda shattered, destroyed. Their lives were over. When Jesus died, their hopes were over. Their lives, were, their lives were over. The very person that they sought for life and power and salvation, they really realize now, I think this person's ruining my life. The resurrection changed all of that. And so the wounds were how they recognized him because they saw him die. When they saw him die, they saw their lives, their agenda, everything shattered. And so to see him resurrected, they saw their lives reborn. They saw new life. When they believed and they saw Jesus at the resurrection, they realized that everything that they believed about Jesus was probably wrong, false in some ways. They, it wasn't enough. It was still based on what was visible. And so the resurrection changed all that. It gave them new life. It gave them a new courage, a new boldness. It gave them a courage that enabled them to handle the pressure and the fears and the suffering like never before. If you believe in the resurrection of Jesus, if you see his wounds, one day we're all, how are we going to be recognized in heaven? It's going to be by our wounds. Some of us have been emotionally scarred in a way that you feel you'll never be healed. Some of you have been, have been damaged in a way that you, how am I ever going to live through this? One day, if you believe in the re- a better resurrection, one day, those things will be a part of your glorified person. It will be etched in there. We'll recognize one another. We'll celebrate in glory with that. You see that? Some of us, the idea of abandoning the agenda and just having more of Jesus, that scares us. Why? Because like the disciples, uh, 
although we believe that Jesus will save us, it feels like it's going to ruin our lives because you're abandoning something. It's so counterintuitive. Friends, what is the better resurrection? Being found in Jesus, that means that every death you experience is going to lead to a rising again. That's what that means. Every failure you experience is going to resurrect you into greater humility, greater wisdom, greater compassion, greater integrity, greater character. Everything that goes wrong, every sorrow you ever experience, one day, you ever read Lord of the Rings? One day it will all become undone. It will unravel, and the glory will, will subsume every pain that you've ever experienced. You see that? On the cross, Jesus Christ says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ suffered the ultimate non-escape, the ultimate suffering, the ultimate pain, the ultimate rejection, not just from men. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That means that he not only suffered earthly, visible rejection, but a cosmic abandonment from his own father, from his own God. He was forsaken. And what he's saying is now my true escape, my true rescue, there will be no miracle in my life. And he chose it. Do you know that? He chose it gladly. Isaiah 53 says he was satisfied on the cross. He was satisfied to see what? You gaining a better resurrection he was satisfied at the justification of many that's what isaiah 53 says to see you that's what he looked ahead to and he believed and he trusted god had abandoned him and he still called him my god he still trusted all the way to his death jesus christ suffered jesus christ was tortured Jesus Christ was rejected and jeered and flogged. Jesus Christ became a prisoner. He was put to death. And he chose it. And he refused release. Why? So that you could gain a better resurrection. So that you can have hope. A hope that will give you power. A power that will enable you to handle all the suffering that you endure in your life. So that Jesus Christ can look out and say, I have you. I have forsaken all things. God has forsaken me. Why? So we can have you. That's what he could have. And so that you can have him. So you can have him. To know that Jesus died for me, does that make him more beautiful in your lives? To know that Jesus Christ made himself weak, made himself weak so that you can have power, so that you can overcome, so that his weakness will turn into your strength. Would that make, him trust, would that make you trust him more? Would that make him more beautiful? Would that make you love him more? When you're suffering, when you're suffering, you're actually connecting with Jesus on the cross. He suffered immeasurably. Why? So he could demonstrate his immeasurable love for you so that he could have you. To know this, that's what's going to bring you power. That's what's going to bring you healing. That's what's going to bring you courage. That's what's going to give you hope. That's what's going to give you commitment. That's what's going to give you love, even in death. Friends, do you trust this? Do you believe this? Let's pray.